right, this is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. All right, guys, our very first podcast. So let's let everybody get to know our uh, voices. So say your name and the first movie you ever remember seeing in the theater. My name is Lance, and does a drive-in theater count? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna go with ET. It wasn't the best experience. The audio didn't work, so and I your basically watched. Were making out the whole time? No, that didn't happen. <laughs> I uh, no, I basically watched ET as a silent film for two hours. So that was a lot of fun, but it, it was a cool experience. What did you think ET's voice sounded like? Um, Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you? I was. Oh, let's see. I think I was five. ET was strange because I remember it had this kind of carnival thing where it would like come to town every year i don't know if you remember mm-hmm. that in the no. early yeah the really early 80s it wasn't like it is now it was it was the the movie would get released and it'd God, go away and then it'd so come back old already i know <laughs> but yeah it would kind of come and go and i i don't think it actually came out the, mo- the, the the movie was made in 82 and um i don't think it actually you could watch it in your home until like mm. 88 or 89 yeah it wasn't released until yeah, on a blue so. vhs tape Anyway, it's a big top would come through and they'd set up the projector. <laughs> come on, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a guy with a top hat and a cane would come out. And, yeah, it was great. So, you know, as far as first movies go to see, that was kind of starting right at the top of the mountain. Uh, my name is Jordan. I have a memory of seeing Return of the Jedi in the theater, but I don't actually think it was true. I don't think I actually saw it. Because my memory tells me it was in 3D. Was it in 3D? No. No. Yeah. So I didn't. I did not. <laughs> no. I did not. It was a film called one. Star Chaser Legend of the Orion yeah. in 3D in 1986. Maybe that's what it was. I Maybe you I don't remember ever seeing that one. So I don't remember what the first movie I ever saw in the theater was, but I remember the first R rated movie I saw in the theater. Oh, that's important. Which was uh, in 1992. My dad took me to see Last of the Mohicans. That's and it was a terrible, big deal. Terrible parenting. I believe that's my first movie theater R rated film as town. well. Wow. What if we were there on the same day? It's possible. Yeah. Fantastic score of that movie, though. I haven't seen it in so long. I mean, did you guys, do you think that's appropriate for your parents to be taking you to see Last of the Movie? Did they give you heroin to to shoot while you watch the movie, too? <laughs> and that's why you thought they didn't. I, I don't, they they just, didn't. I remember beers. Odd. I remember a yeah. lot of beers. There's all that During crack the movie? smoking. Yeah, in. I remember my dad and I cracking beers. Yeah. No, that's, that's <laughs> a lot good. of crack smoking in Last of the Movie, too. <laughs> yeah. maybe, no, maybe that's why you thought it was uh, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Was it I, Last of the or Juice? Uh, it's just violence, right? It is violent. I mean, there's no. I, 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 don't, I don't. I don't watch that filth, so I don't know. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, Last of the Mohicans was a great. Movie. You draw the line. It, it was rated R. Last of the Mohicans was rated yeah, R. Yeah. There's a lot of scalping. Yeah, there was some. Scalping. Yeah, it was, it was big on scalping. My dad and I paid so much for the tickets outside. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's my turn. I am Kyle Gibson. I will be referred to by another name throughout the podcast. I am sure. Gabby. There we go. That's one of them. Uh, the first film that I ever remember seeing in a theater, I vividly remember seeing Empire Strikes Back in the theater, although obviously it wasn't during its first release, like Lance Hurd had mentioned earlier. Uh, they, they came around town you I saw it at, the carnival. It at the theater at the carnival. <laughs> um, I also remember walking out of Tron because I was too scared. Both of them were like in 81 or 82. <laughs> scared of Tron? Is Tron scared? scared? Well, Tron. that part where the guy gets electrocuted. You're terrified of light. <laughs> <laughs> Terrified of terrible graphics. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you guys are talking about. Those graphics are pretty fantastic. Uh, and my name is Hudson. And the first movie I ever remember seeing is 101 Dalmatians, 
which I'm assuming would be a re-release because I don't think that came out. And I don't think you were born 80s. in the late 80s. In my head, I thought you meant the Glenn Close 1996 <laughs> version. That was very sheltered. His, yeah, he saw his first movie when he was 23. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's totally capable of doing a podcast about movies. Uh, what yeah. were, the, were that many movies like re-released in the theaters over and over? They would have had to have been. Because there wasn't... Yeah, I just I don't remember that at all. I'm so much younger than yeah. you. Are slightly you. <laughs> younger. I remember seeing Captain EO. That was probably one of the. Because what year was EO? I don't you think Captain EO Disney? was. That was at Epcot. Yeah. 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 yeah, no, I know. I, but uh, it's, that was in a theater at Epcot. Yeah, I don't think oh, that that's counts, why you thought though. Star Wars was 3D. <laughs> it might be. Yeah, that might be. Yeah. Why well, would would have been like five? Yeah, was that directed by Lucas? Coppola. Yes, Coppola. That's right. Coppola directed it. Godfather, conversation. Apocalypse Now, Captain EO. <laughs> I, I recently watched uh, Apocalypse Now again, and I... Um, it's no Captain EO. <laughs> I, w- I wish I could have watched Captain EO instead. Well, I watched <laughs> Captain EO recently, and it was actually kind of cool. Yeah. It's kind of throwbacky now. Yeah. Well, it's got one Angelica Houston in it. Yeah, who I That's thought cool. was Sigourney Weaver the whole time. <laughs> That's weird. You're yeah. an idiot. Okay. Because, wait, because she was wearing space panties? Uh, she had some makeup and stuff. I don't know what yeah, it was. I'm talking Short about space hair. panties. <laughs> I'm not talking about makeup. So, so wait, in your mind, Sigourney Weaver is just Angelica Houston with, uh, with makeup? makeup on. <laughs> They're both tall and have dark hair. I can see the confusion. Yeah. It, was the, it, was, I mean, it was like the 80s. So she just had that 80s haircut, you know? Sigourney Weaver definitely had that 80s haircut. <laughs> All right. So today is our debut podcast. Uh, today's theme is debuts. Uh, we'll be talking about the best films by first-time directors and talking about our own personal debuts, uh, and we'll see how that goes. Our debuts as directors? <laughs> yeah. What are our debuts as, as might not be human beings. <laughs> talking about birth. <laughs> <laughs> what our first what, days what were like on about the birth canal, Lance? <laughs> that's, that's, that's twice already. We've been going 10 minutes, and my parents have come up in weird sexual ways. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, uh, well, first of all, so we're doing this podcast. We want, every week, we want to be able to do lists that are kind of like the best of lists. All right, Lance, start us off with your number three pick. We're going to count down from three, two, and then one uh, in backwards next? numerical order. Interesting order. Of our favorite films by first-time filmmakers. Rob Reiner's 1984 classic, This is Spinal Tap. Um and there were really two reasons I kind of ended up laying on that one. First off, it, it, it essentially, I'm not going to say invented a subgenre, but it got a subgenre, the mockumentary, really out into the, into the limelight and made it more of a mainstream thing that then kicked off many subgenres, uh, many mockumentaries uh, you know, throughout the 80s, 90s, and still, a lot of which uh, the best ones were by this same creative team that made Spinal Tab. Um, the second, because I just love this movie, it just brings me personally a great deal of joy. Uh, I don't generally love comedies. They just don't make me laugh, as odd as that might sound. But when a movie can make me laugh out loud, it pretty quickly gets into the, the pantheon of my, my favorite films. And what Spinal does, Tap did that over what, and over and over again. What does make you laugh, Lance? If not a uh, comedy. Spinal Tap? <laughs> spinal Tap does. Spinal Tap does. You okay. mean, you mean the medical procedure of tapping your spine. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, the, it, there's. You'll there's, often see Lance I at can, the hospital. <laughs> just, just for my own. Hey guys, amusement. up for a giggle. Just doubled over and left. No, yeah. there's there's movie there's movies that can amuse you, and you can sit there and kind of grin while you're watching. And I'm talking about a movie that legitimately makes me lol yeah, for what, real, what, an actual audible what that laugh. For? I don't remember. So, 
Spinal Tap, this got me, as I was researching this, there was a little bit I got into about just kind of the history of mockumentaries. And Spinal Tap didn't actually invent the mockumentary. Um, mockumentaries kind of started in the 1960s with British TV. Spinal Tap did, though, kind of bring it out. But I, Spinal Tap, to me, is great. It uses what is probably the greatest comedy device to me, which is when a character or group of characters think one thing is happening, and in reality, a completely different thing is happening. And that's what makes this movie so much fun. If you haven't seen it, it's essentially about a, uh, a British rock band that's kind of in the waning days of its success. So what we're watching as a viewer is essentially their their careers falling apart, but they are kind of trying to keep it going the whole time and remind themselves that they're still on top, they're still amazing, and they're totally not. They used to play in 20,000-person arenas, now they're playing in 1,000-person arenas on college campuses. I, I don't know. That, that record's pretty good. Well, that's kind of the other funny thing about it. It... it it's the whole thing is a comedy. The songs were written by guys who weren't musicians, but the songs are great. Oh, they're amazing! Uh, they're, like I mean, I would buy the album. I guess I could buy the album. There's nothing <laughs> stopping me from doing it. But I, I have bought the album. Have you? Oh, oh, wow! But I wish that they would release that the Jazz release. Odyssey. But they, yeah, it remains unreleased. Well, it's kind of an irony in the film is that it's essentially about a band dying and falling apart, but it really created a band, and it's. The funny thing, I actually growing up thought Spinal Tap was a real legitimate I did band. Yeah, I did too. Yeah. It confused I me. I thought it was just like Led Zeppelin, ACDC, Spinal Tap. Yeah. I thought they were yeah. a real band that all just idiots. played at venues. <laughs> I know. And I, and I would see this movie pop up on like favorite comedy lists, and I was like, somebody made a funny movie about that terrifying metal band? <laughs> like, I didn't know that the whole thing was a joke growing up, yeah. and it, it totally was. So. Well, I'll tell you, I, I uh, entertained putting this on my list as well. My problem was that... To me, Rob Reiner is a—I mean, he's a fantastic director, but he—he he didn't keep doing that same movie over and over, which you could say is a positive about him. But to me, I, my list—I really wanted to focus on those that established a certain voice that repeated. I that think voice. that's why he's one of the greatest directors because he honestly he works ever. in many different. <laughs> Hit that genres run he had in the '80s is the most unstoppable run, a director run I, that I know of. What were those movies? Was five of them? Well, it's Spinal Tap, Sure Thing, Stand By Stand Me, by me yeah. Princess Bride, and Princess Bride, Misery. Misery, A Few Good Men, When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, it's pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. But they are, it is all over the place. It, yeah. That's what's so amazing about yeah. it to me is that he can switch gears so extremely and make quality films in, in those, all those different genres yeah. in such a small period of time. Yeah. And he's a comedy guy, so making those dramas at the end, pretty impressive. He's, he is, he's a comedy guy, but he never really did comedy quite like this again, which is kind of a shame. But fortunately, Christopher Guest, Michael yeah. Keane, and Harry Shearer went on to do um, several other movies. Several amazing. Uh, Waiting for comedies. Guffman. Um, Best in Show. Best in Show. Yep. The Simpsons. The, yeah. yeah <laughs> Simpsons, so, it's not a, yeah. not a movie. So yeah, that's my number three, <laughs> Spinal Tap. All right, Jordan, number three. My number three is Shallow Grave by Danny Boyle. It's pretty much exactly what I want out of a movie. It's dark, and it's funny, and it's about friendship. It's got gore and violence. and uh, It's got Al Gore in it. No, Al Gore is not in it. That which is odd. It's sequel. Uh, it's got techno music. Mm. <laughs> Big... Big seller. You have for a me. strange <laughs> list of criteria for movies. It's <laughs> not really one, but Al Gore uh, and techno music. I love Danny Boyle, and I think he went on to make other amazing movies. But I, I just, if I, I've always thought if I could make a movie like Shallow Grave, I'd be, I'd be pretty pumped. You could die and be happy. Yeah, you are right yeah. to love Danny right Boyle. Um, he, he's, he's, he's a lot like Rob Reiner, really, in that he, every, he was very eclectic. Yeah, Everything yeah. he did after Nowadays. that was very diverse and absolutely. Except he's going to do Train Spotting too, which is. Yeah. Going back to the world. Probably not that diverse. Going back to give, the train. Give it a shot. Give it a shot. Do I have to? Yeah. Okay, I'll give it a shot. 
All right, so my number three, really being honest, it's just a bunch of Pixar directors. We're going with John Lasseter, Andrew Stanton, and Pete Docter. Wow, this seems like cheating. Yeah, I don't think it's cheating at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're being honest here, Gibby. Yeah, we're being honest. And so you got Toy Story and uh, Monsters, Inc. and Finding Nemo, which are three of my top five Pixar films. And, right, right, right. But the list was general. top three debut films, not top six. These are all just one. They're animated movies, and so they count a little less. No, no. Wow. <laughs> I am sorry for the animators. I'm just kidding. These are probably some of my favorite movies of all time. So uh, just pick one of them. Yeah, pick one. Uh, Monsters, Inc. Pete Docter. Really? Over Toy Story? Wow. In terms of debut film. Monsters, Inc. Now, Toy Story 3 may be my favorite Pixar film. That was not a debut. Actually, it was, wasn't it? There's a bug in the Lee Unkrench. Yeah. (laughs) There's a bug in Jordan's drink, but... Bug's life. uh, I love sentimental films, and I love Pixar films. Uh, Was Monsters, Inc. a co-director thing? I think Doctor, yeah, it may have been last I feel like a lot of these animated films get a pass because they, like, yes, it might be their first film, but they also co-directed it, and it's also they are working inside this large team of, like, Pixar, where it's like you've got these brilliant... Right, and I think that's one reason why their debut films are so good, because they're not on their own to do it. They get a good team input. How many studio films are are these big team around a director debuting? That's not like creative team helping them make decisions. I don't think you know in big studio films, it's a studio exec giving them notes. And I, I would think. I mean, I don't know Bruce that much Willis about the studio the system, off. but I would think that it's more than just some yeah suits. True. Well, I mean, it's a different kind of team, though. I mean, like Pixar spends, or it seems to be that they spend ninety percent of their time on the story, mm-hmm. whereas in filmmaking, you kind of have a script and you're basing everything off of that, and everybody's building on that script, but you're not spending ninety percent of your time on the on the story, you're spending ninety percent of your time on the filmmaking. Right, but um, you got a studio. You've got you've got all these resources and things that that a, another director may not have in their debut. True. Well, you look at uh, Andrew Stanton has said that one of the things that's great about the animated film is that if something's not working, you can go back and fix it. Whereas on a as you're doing it, or even later, whereas his trouble with John Carter of Mars was if there's something that didn't work, it would be millions of dollars to go mm-hmm. back and reshoot it. Right. You couldn't see what was working on. Yeah, they would get to test things. Yeah. Um, so I have a bit of trivia that kind of lines up with this because I think it's interesting. I think there is a very big difference between, let's say, debut movies in the 90s were kind of, uh, you know, indie film kind of hit its stride and, and versus debut films now where you might have these guys who their first film is a $200 million film. Mm-hmm. So, okay, I've got two names for you. Have you ever heard of the guy Robert Stromberg? Yes. Gibby's heard of him. What did he do, Gibby? Maleficent. He did Maleficent. Maleficent is the highest grossing first film for anybody, for any filmmaker. Whoa. It's this guy, Robert Stromberg. I've never even heard of him until we did research for this. He was a set director or whatever. On yeah, House and it made $758 million, his first film that he's ever made. Whoa. But essentially, I mean, I never heard of him because essentially these guys making these big films are pretty much invisible. You right, know, I mean, it's right. like it's the character that they're selling. It's the plot that they're selling. It's Disney that they're selling. And then the other one is uh, Gibby Dino, the most expensive debut. That is the highest budget first film. Hmm. You got me. Tron Legacy. Ah, Joe Kaczynski. Oh, you couldn't Kaczynski. watch that because you'd be afraid of it. <laughs> <laughs> Too many. We lights. saw it together. Did I get scared? I don't think so. Too much bit. Daft Punk. I did. I yeah. saw. You know, I saw your list. And I, I did a little research on Pixar, and I learned something I did not know. So when uh, Pixar, uh, when they brought the first draft of Toy Story, uh, Disney hated it. 
Like, absolutely right. hated yeah. it. Um, apparently, Woody was kind of like a douchebag who just walked around and made fun of the other toys for an hour and a half. And they said this is unwatchable. I think the word they used was unwatchable. So they brought in a screenwriter named Joss Whedon to come in oh. and do rewrites to make Never it better. Never heard of him. Uh, well, yeah, yes, you have. Um, <laughs> and Whedon, when he gets the script, his word, his quote was, uh, this is in shambles. So huh. it's interesting that they kind of became known as these quality, amazing, great filmmakers. And when they first started, they were terrible, terrible. at writing scripts. Also, does anybody, like whenever you hear Buzz Lightyear talk, do you not think it's George Clooney? I always think it's George Clooney. <laughs> I, it, I, After three movies and all the shorts. It's Tim Allen? It's Tim yeah, Allen. It's Tim they Allen. sound exactly alike. Yeah. It's weird. Funny. I've never seen him in the same room together. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm going to jump into my number three, Pride and Prejudice. Joe Wright. Never seen it. Joe Wright. Uh, The 2005 Pride and Prejudice. So it is, you know, it's 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, Obviously, Pride and Prejudice is a book that's been around Jane Austen for for a very long time. Lots of people have made adaptations of it. And I, and that's what kind of what I think is most amazing about it is Joe Wright brought something unique to that story and made it interesting. And he did a lot of cool things with kind of long takes uh, yeah. and added kind of a voice uh, to that story that uh, wasn't there before. And it was an extremely successful adaptation. Um, Joe Wright won the BAFTA for Most Promising Newcomer that year. It was also nominated for Best Film at the BAFTAs that year. It was nominated for four Academy Awards. All on his first film. Uh, a little bit of background on Joe Wright. Uh, his parents owned a puppet theater, so he kind of grew up around some sort of drama. Uh, went on to art school to study film, acted on stage and directed short films, uh, music videos, television for a full decade before he directed his first film at the age of 33, which was uh, Pride and Prejudice. So he'd been kicking around for a long time. The BAFTAs, as you said, are the British American <laughs> Film and American. Theater Awards. Film and Theater, not Film and Television? Film and television. Wait, what's the A stand for? I don't know. British America. Academy? It, it can't be American. <laughs> <laughs> well, it can. Yeah. No, it surely They tried can. to colonize yeah. us, and we didn't let them. <laughs> British Academy of Film and Television There Arts? we go. Uh, yeah. Maybe? Uh, I love Joe Wright. In terms of like uh, the first four movies we've discussed, he's probably the director that I'm most excited to see what he does for going into the future. Every time I hear a Joe Wright Until Pan, picture coming up. Awful. Yeah, Pan was pretty terrible. Yeah. All right, Lance, number two for you. Number two. Uh, number two. So like I said, number two and number one were pretty easy for me to come up with. Uh, with number two, I went with uh, Charles Lawton's 1955, Night of the Hunter. So this is a movie, I, I would put this on a lot of different lists. Uh, most underrated films ever made, greatest films of all time, most overlooked when it came out, and, and this one will sound odd, greatest final film. So this is going to be the only movie that I think will be on any of our lists where uh, it was both the director's first and last film, because Charles Lawton only did one movie, Night of the Hunter. The, the, the gist of the story, it's, it follows the story of this uh, wayward preacher played by Robert Mitchum, who is thrown into prison, meets a man who's about to be executed for robbing a bank and committing murder. The man in his sleep says that he's hidden the money with his children, and after he's executed, Mitchum then gets out of jail, ingratiates himself with the family, marries the mom, tries to figure out where the money is, and basically ends up tearing the family apart in the process. The bulk of the film is really a journey where he's chasing the children across uh, Depression-era America. Uh, the, you know, the, there's a lot of discussion around this movie and kind of why why was it the only movie Lot never did? Did he not like filmmaking? Did it... Essentially, the reason is because this movie completely tanked at the box office. Hmm. So Lawton had actually done a lot of uh, stage stuff in Great Britain. And if you if you don't know who Lawton is, he was in Spartacus. He was in... Um, if, if you see his face, you'll know him immediately. The things he was most famous for were uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, Witness for the Prosecution, and Spartacus were probably his 
you know, three most well most recognized roles. But essentially, he was just massively disappointed. The film came out in 1955, and he actually died uh, seven years later. Wow. And I think, you know, which then brings up another question. Well, why did the movie, heart. if the movie's so good, why did it fail? And I think it brings up an interesting question. If the question movie's of, so good, why did he die? <laughs> Before you go any further, I embarrassingly, embarrassingly have never seen this movie. That's I've very, also never seen so, it. I saw so, it about a year ago. It's very embarrassing if, for if both you, of you. But if you, more importantly, if you could avoid ruining any of the jokes in this one, <laughs> I'd really appreciate it. Sounds like it. a laugh, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, so you ask yourself the question, why do great movies fail when they first come out? And you could probably do an entirely different episode about that. Yeah. But typically, there's a, few, there's a few of them. You know, there's the cliche, it was just ahead of its time. You know, the movie pushed through some new boundary that audiences hadn't seen. Or sometimes a movie could just be too shocking. People aren't ready for it. And that was really the case with Night of the Hunter. Huh. Um, Night of was the it, Hunter. Was it also a critical bomb? People it did, didn't it get didn't it. Find it didn't find it. It's, it's, it's yeah, audience that, that until was later. That was essentially the problem with it. Now this is a, this is a this is a movie that has seen. I remember this is 1955 when this thing comes out. I don't remember 1955. I remember it vaguely. But your mom does. Yeah, I'm just gonna... <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I'm not sure that my mom does. Oh, well, we'll just yeah, we'll edit my all this does. out <laughs> later. <laughs> here, here, these are some of the scenes in a movie made in 1955. A preacher who murders people and at one point is shown in a strip club. A man and his wife debating whether they're going to have sex on their wedding night. And this is remember this is a time where on TV you weren't allowed to show two married people sleeping in the same bed. Right. And then a guy who was a, a, just trying to straight up murder two children. That's a, <laughs> yeah. these, are, these are things in 1955. So you can imagine wow. why audiences would look at this and go, we don't know what to do with this. These, these two kids are just put through hell on this movie. It's insane. And one of the little fact about this movie, Charles Lawton hated, hated children. Could not <laughs> stand children. Uh, never, so the I'd, whole movie's an allegory about all the kids he wants to kill. He may, have <laughs> never, he may have never made another movie because he just wanted... An excuse to torture kids for <laughs> for uh, a month of production, but um, this was the last movie he ever did. It's an did he have one. children? I don't believe he did. Um, he had a very complicated personal life that I don't believe ever actually included having children. Um, so I have a trivia, bit of trivia. Um, another filmmaker made a movie in 1961. It was his first movie and his last movie, and he won an Academy Award for it. Do you know what it is? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jerome Robbins for West Side Story. Oh, oh and yes, that is the only one he directed. Why didn't Robbins do another movie? Do you know? Well, he he co-directed West Side Story. Charles Lawton killed him. <laughs> <laughs> he he co-directed West Side Story, and so I, I imagine his part in West Side Story, directing wise, was doing all of the choreography and, and dance right. directing yeah, yeah, parts. Yeah. I figured maybe co-directing, the, yeah. dealing with the gritty realities of. Sh- teen street violence that West Side Story deals with just got to him psychologically yeah. and he couldn't, he couldn't cope anymore. All right, Jordan, you're number two. It's Blood Simple. It's Coen Ooh, Brothers. Coen Brothers. Good choice. Yeah, it's, I, I'm still absolutely blown away every time I watch this movie. It's really pretty much perfect as far as I'm concerned. Did you say they raised it? money by going door to door? Right, so they shot this teaser and apparently they, I mean, 80. Two eighty one. What do you have? Like a projector that you're bringing in a case, yeah. like you're in, a, in school. I mean, I don't think it was literally like going to one neighborhood and knocking on doors, but it was like they would. But like studios? No, I think no, they no, went... no. It was people's houses. Oh, wow. But it was that's, like that's it would insane. be like dentists and doctors, like people with money that would want to invest in films. You think, they would go they, from house to house. Are they still doing that? 
they, they <laughs> the Coen brothers? Door door. Yeah. yeah. They came I, to my house a couple years ago to, to do that so stupid Lewin Hamilton Turns out I'm not a doctor. <laughs> there are people in this country who have a story about the Coen brothers coming up to their front yeah, door and asking them for be money. Cool. That's, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I wish they were my doctor. Well, they're probably dead now because that was in the 30s. Or 80s. Wow, this got weird. <laughs> Okay. So what you're saying is the Coens are roughly 140 years old. <laughs> it actually took them 50 years to make Blood. Wow, and that's why it's so the good. longest production. <laughs> it was a good teaser. <laughs> mm. uh, good. I just I just think it's such a strong movie, and it, and it all, of course it speaks to what the Coens would do for the next yeah. 15 years. I feel like it had a little less comedy than their stuff did later, but those moments were still in there. That scene. Where dude man drives up in his car and they get in a fight or whatever and then he leaves and he drives down the cul-de-sac <laughs> yeah, and has to turn cul-de-sac. around. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah, I've There's never a, seen Blood Simple. You're kidding. I'm not. Oh, please watch it. Oh, says the guy who's never seen Night of the Hunter. Now you're going to judge people. <laughs> oh, it's, it's in black and white. Oh, Terrible. Um, there, there's, a shot, there's a shot in Blood Simple that I've always loved, which is where... Um, they're shooting through the wall. Oh, yeah. And with every yeah. bullet hole, these like shafts of light. That's come in the through. teaser, too. It's the coolest yeah, shot. Yeah, yeah, It's awesome. That whole scene is unstoppable. It, it, that scene can't be stopped. <laughs> Don't I, even try. I've never it's still going, ever, even it's today. It's still happening. Right have now. you ever tried to pause it? No. Okay. Is that what that means? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right. Next up. Get it. You're number two. And, and can you not select seven movies with this one, please? <laughs> just, let's try and stick with one. My number two is uh, the general themes movies that came out in the 80s. <laughs> 900 films yeah. on my list. Uh, no, my number two is director is Carol Ballard with 1979's The Black Stallion. Oh. <laughs> and Hudson laughs at me. <laughs> oh, he's not the only one, believe me. I tell you what, this is a beautiful film. Like Lance was talking about Night of the Hunter. You know, just being gorgeous and amazing. I think right. the same Horses thing about Black Stallion. Amazing. Yeah. Who? Who is it? Liz. Um. Carol Ballard. Carol, Carol Ballard. Ballard. It's a dude. No, 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 no not the Carol. director. Who oh, stars okay. in it? Uh, Mickey Rooney. Oh, I'm thinking of Black Beauty. Yeah, you're thinking of Black Beauty. This is. I've uh, never seen Black Stallion. Black Stallion is awesome. You were probably thinking of Black Beauty one. too. Yeah, I'm. Well, my thing. I'm not a ten year old girl, so I've never seen this movie. Um, I did. Uh, interesting. <laughs> interesting piece of trivia. Wow. Interesting piece of trivia. Um. <laughs> At the rap party at the end of Black Sound, they actually ate the horse at, at the end. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I don't think that's true. The horse. Why didn't, lived they, and, why didn't they make that the movie? The horse lived and died later until Car- Charles Lawton killed him. Um, what did Carol Ballard <laughs> go on to do? After uh, Carol Ballard went on to it, mostly he was an animal documentarian before this film. Huh. That's a that's a shocker. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I mean you all laugh, but seriously, right. it was Ebert's number one movie of 1980. Guy who has Ebert books over there. Not I'm not that guy. <laughs> Is that an insult? <laughs> guy who has yeah. Ebert books over there. <laughs> Um, can you, You're going to see that all over the seri- Twitterverse. A serious question. The, the, what, what is it about exactly? All right. So, uh, that's, and, and let's make this less than 20 seconds oh, if we can. It comes to the guy who's spent 18 <laughs> minutes talking. Um, all right. Uh, it's basically a story about a boy and a stallion. Uh, the film starts off in a... It's an amazing scene set on a ship. And there's a big wreck and this boy and the stallion are the only one that survived. And so it's a movie of two halves. The first 45 minutes are just the boy and the stallion. No dialogue. Just hanging out. On an island. Like Equus style? No, not like that. Oh like my. Black Stallion style. I know what you're saying. And that's not cool. This is a kid's movie. <laughs> but for adults. It was basically an art film in 1979 and made a lot of money. Uh, what race of character does Mickey Rooney play? Uh, he plays an old oh. white guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I just remember loving it as a kid, and I watched it a couple weeks ago. 
and it's fantastic. It's a, one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen in terms of shot. And wow. There's a perfect shot about 40 minutes in where the boy and the stallion I first can finish that sentence. Please. I thought it wasn't like Eccles. <laughs> it does look like every movie he made after that was about yeah, children, he, he children made, and animals. He made Never Cry Wolf, which is about Charles Martin Henderson and a wolf. And then Fly Away Home and uh, uh-huh. another one. So he basically just the made 2000s. the same movie over and over again. With really? different animals. Yeah, different but the animals. first time it's he like made bird, it was the best. Uh, wolf, the, you know, and you, you know the producers got sick and tired. What about one with a parrot? <laughs> Just over and over a different Oh, uh, Carol, come on. Really? Again? Enough. Don't you have another original idea? Unlike Lance's film, this was an actual success. Oh. And people saw it. Apparently not the three people at this table. <laughs> uh, what year is this? Nope. 1979. 1979. Ward, nominated for a few Academy Awards. Oh, wow. Not the right ones. Well. Uh, I think if you look <laughs> all up... All the wrong awards yeah, all the wrong ones. nominated for. Uh, if you were to look up... Um, most beautiful films made. This will be on your list every time. Really? They don't give an award for that. I know they should, though. As, I think it's called Judge by Pre-Adolescent Girls. <laughs> uh, the DP who did some, some awesome shots is one Caleb Deschanel, oh. father of Zoe and really? Lady from Bones. It also inspired the cover of Trapper Keepers Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's on your Criterion list. How have you not seen it yet? Well, there's a lot of bad movies on the Criterion list. That right, you just skip mm-hmm. over those. That yeah. you skipped? Oh, oh you mean Roger movie. Ebert's number one movie of 1980? Well, hold on. All Roger these, Ebert was doing a lot of you drugs can't back skip over. All these say I'm watching the whole Criterion and okay. skip over movies. You really skipped I haven't seen Criterion? It yet. No, I'm going to watch it. I thought you were just, watching them in order. No. Then you're going to feel like a doofus, and we'll have to do a podcast in a year and a half when Lance watches it. Because my number one was actually going to be you, Lance, for watching (laughs) all the Criterions in order. Your number one debut film. Yeah. All right. Okay, my number two. I should have picked something else. uh, Bottle Rocket by Wes Anderson. 1996 film, Wes Anderson, 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. Wes Anderson made this movie after graduating from University of Texas in Austin. He went to school there with Owen Wilson. Uh, The two made the short film version of Bottle Rocket, which got into Sundance and also the attention of James L. Brooks who produced the feature version of uh, Bottle Rocket. He made this at uh, age 27, um, and I believe it's kind of his first thing that he did was was Bottle Rocket. And you can even see in the short, the black and white version of the short, it's got the Wes Anderson-isms in it mm-hmm. uh, very early on. It plays a little more 90s indie dialogue than what he does now, um, which is a lot more kind of structured and more kind of literary sounding. But the film went on to uh, be a bomb, actually. It made only 400000 at the box office on a $5 million budget. But I, rem- I remember it being the bomb, yeah. <laughs> <It was great. laughs> but it became a kind of critical hit. Martin Scorsese named it one of his top ten favorite movies of that year. I want you to imagine that for a moment. I want he you probably to imagine, named Black Stallion number one you, in 1980. Yeah, he probably did. I want you to imagine Marty at home, <laughs> on his couch, <laughs> watching Bottle Rocket. Lance, can you do your Marty impression? It's hard for me to imagine. Marty, I think uh, I think movies are the real world. I think they're they're they're, they're our dreams. Right. <laughs> Did he have a baby with Woody <laughs> Allen? <laughs> <laughs> it's the same guy. They're both <laughs> old New York guys. Yeah. Same thing. Also, apparently, the film scored the worst test screening uh, in the history of Columbia Pictures, or that's the factoid I read. It actually, had uh, the highest walkout rate that year. Really? Yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember hearing that uh, a couple years after Bottle it came Rocket. Out. Yeah. Bottle Rocket. People the walked went- out of it like crazy at it. Uh, went on to find a cult following on VHS and DVD. Uh, also, Owen Wilson's first movie, and uh, was his brother Brian Wilson? <laughs> nope, I believe it's Andrew. 
No. I, I, I remember Bottle Rocket being oh, sold to me. The wind is actually an actor. Okay. When some friends Luke. of mine saw it first, and I came into town to visit them, and they were like, you got to see this movie. You're probably not going to like it the first time you watch it, but then you're going to keep thinking about it, and you're going to love it. Was it true? It was absolutely true. I had the it's same just, experience. It's so quotable, and yeah, you just... It's, it's the kind of movie you want to watch with friends and then talk about over dinner and quote I think, I, I think at that point, at least as a... 18 year old or however old I was at the time like I hadn't seen many movies like that and so I think watching right. it the first time I'm like what like what why is it so this is too goofy but not like not laugh out loud funny until until you talk about it uh, yeah. it's also the only uh, Wes Anderson movie not to have Screenplay. Bill Murray in it uh, however it's he the wanted, only one he wanted Bill Murray for the James Conn role apparently mm. and I doubt had the clout yeah. to get him at that point but. yeah yeah stylistically it's a it's a strange film because you you see it's it, it's just so different there's a there's a definite Wes Andersonishness to his movies and mm. you see it very little and it's almost like every movie he's made he's tried it's to make it more Wes Anderson yeah more quirky more of that just whole him but you see it in little traces almost like he was af- afraid to unleash all the wes anderson on us yet and, and it <laughs> or was didn't not, have the money to yeah or, or, the or that so yeah great movie good choice mm-hmm. uh, i i didn't see bottle rocket until about a year and a half ago and i loved it for real really? yeah for real I, I had borrowed lance's copy for about five years between 2002 to 2007 <laughs> i remember that uh, but i never watched it but a couple years ago i watched it and Wes Anderson is probably my what, favorite director. Was last year 2007? Uh, no, I didn't watch this version. I eventually just gave it back. This Hard is a time with years <laughs> podcast so far. All right, I, Lance, I bought it. Uh, we are down to your number one DVD. absolute best film by a first-time filmmaker. And yes, we can all guess what it is. Rosebud. <laughs> Never so heard of Star you Wars? can't. You can't now. Rosebud was oh. in Star Wars. You there. You can't legitimize a list like this without having Citizen Kane at least somewhere on it. So oh, it's not uh, John Stewart's first movie. Choice. I'm going to ignore <laughs> that. Uh, it was 1941. Orson Welles, Citizen Kane. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the conversations around Kane have to do about whether it's the greatest film of all time. That's not the topic, so I'm going to avoid that conversation because that is actually not why I picked this movie to be number one. There, there's one thing about this movie that, in my mind, makes it stand out from every other movie on every other list that makes it indisputably the greatest debut, debut film of all time. You guys can debate. Did you say what was that adjective you just used? Greatest, indisputably, Debatable? yeah, indisputably. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you can't dispute it. That okay. means that means. The podcast ends as soon as right. I get done yeah. talking. Oh. Right the whole point of the podcast is... Um, which will probably be another eight minutes. Well, that sounds super interesting. <laughs> so here, here's here's the argument I'm going to make. Um, and I have to give you a little bit of background on Orson Welles here. Orson Welles was born at some point. <laughs> but from, from his birth, he was labeled like a child genius. He really got his start on radio and on Broadway in New York City and became kind of a legendary in those worlds for just creating amazing content. That naturally propelled him into the to the film world where he got a kind of a all rights to do whatever you want type contract from RKO Pictures. Why is that relevant? Well, essentially, this is the only movie made by a director where the de- debut was expected to be incredible. So he basically walked into the situation with tons of pressure and not only delivers a great movie, but delivers what many people consider the greatest movie of all time. It's kind of like hitting the longest home run ever, except instead of doing it in your backyard, you do it in a stadium where everyone has shown up and been sold their t- tickets specifically to see you hit a home run. I mean, it's it's. Lance wrote that line down. He was reading it. <laughs> yeah. Did it sound like I read it? Yeah. I couldn't get that out. Couldn't get that out. Did he, did he point to the outfield the whole time that he was directing? No, no, but that it's, it is. It's like he called a 
shot. What was he most famous for by that point? Was it the War of the Worlds thing, or was he just everybody like knew him because of the War, War of the Worlds was the big thing he got on the map for. He had done a lot of uh, Shakespeare in Harlem, actually, I believe it was. Huh. He had he had cast Shakespeare with with black actors, and it had just gone off beautifully. Wow. So that's that's primarily what he was known for. Nobody knew if the guy could make a movie or not. So they give him all this money. They give him this contract that was just unheard of at that time you think about the amount of pressure on somebody he's it's you know it's pretty well known that he was 26 at that point and makes one of the greatest films how, of all time. how tall was he know. at that point who cares <laughs> who cares doesn't matter and was it immediately like critically and financially successful it actually was it was it was nominated for best picture that year uh it was a financial success the the story around the release of it is is somewhat legendary with um, the newspaper, oh, the newspaper guy. guy yeah uh, William Randolph Hearst mm. uh, who the movie was pretty much based on trying to burn all the negatives and destroy the film wow. so it wouldn't get out and embarrass him now I had heard that a lot of it didn't win Best Picture because a lot of the people in Hollywood just didn't like Orson Welles that's a bit of a yeah that that had something to do with it it's I think it's also um, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with um, Night of the Hunter and it was a film that came out and it, it had so many unusual things to it it was a non-linear narrative the story jumped around all over the place it did a lot of things that people weren't ready for at that time Roger Ebert who I'm going to reference a lot <laughs> in the course of this podcast talks about who being, is that he I'm picked not. Black Stallion as his best film of 1980. <laughs> oh, that guy. That's that what guy. he's known for that primarily, guy. picking Black Stallion. <laughs> he's a sled. <laughs> uh, he, he, he talks about three different movies altering the course of cinema history. The first one being um, Birth of a Nation, because it really put the narrative together on screen. The second being Citizen Kane, because it did a. It was the first to take a narrative and make it a nonlinear thing. Hmm. So you didn't have to tell a story chronologically. And then you had 2001 A Space Odyssey, because it just did away with the narrative altogether. You could, tell a, you could t- make a great movie without actually telling a story. So uh, it, it was a pretty pivotal moment in the history of film, and that's why you see it at the top of so many greatest movies list. Questions? <laughs> I, I, I actually I have, a, I have a concern. which is that yes technically it's a a film directorial debut but to me he had just done so much before that and especially war of the worlds where like he's already he went and made jordan's list because he'd already been a success this was film debuts right Right. yes no i understand that technically technically it is and so i'm not saying that it's not a valid choice for you it just is a little bit less of a valid choice well i i would counter that by saying that um so i mean charles lawton had done broadway plays i mean most of most of the people on this list had done other things some of them had done tv movies which you may or may not have counted. a lot of times that's required in order to make a great debut film and it's arguable i guess is that having experience doing at least something related to that to right. telling stories or right. to I, yeah right. I'm not saying you can't have done anything before sure. but right. having done War of the Worlds especially feels to me like I mean I'm not it's it's difficult I'm not trying to discount Citizen Kane Citizen Kane which I enjoy immensely there's just so much success that already builds it up there is and I think again that's true of anything so so did he ever um, Orson Welles Never really lived up to that again, though, right? I mean, he was always defined by Citizen Kane, never really... He basically became he, Charles Foster Kane that, in his uh, life. You're absolutely right about that, Gibby. He, he completely did. He sort of ended up following that path. He had a really odd career because it. you would think that making Citizen Kane would buy him a little bit of credibility. Every single movie the guy made after that, it was like not only did the studios not want to release it, they wanted to like murder him. <laughs> yeah. it, it was like this battle for his life every single time, and it was insane. 
Um, it seems like if you just let the guy do what he wanted to do, and it's really kind of a shame. We 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 lost a lot of great movies that uh, Magnificent Ambersons, I believe, was his next film, which yeah. is which is up there with Citizen Kane. It's great. Um, it's a it's an incredible movie. It was reshot, tampered with. Um, yeah, it just kind of changed. ends. Yeah, it just kind of it just kind of ends abruptly, and um, you never really got to see his vision for it. And that was true of a lot of the movies that he did. But he did very much uh, follow a path like Charles Foster Kane did. So. And at that point in time, there was no indie film because the studios all owned the theaters. Right. Am I right? And mm. so there was no other distribution for your films. Like he couldn't. I mean, he obviously would have had the money at that point to make his own film, but nobody would have seen it. Well, that's what he tried to do later in his life a lot, too. If you, if you follow him in the 60s, 70s, and um, even somewhat in the 80s, he lived this weird reclusive life where he would always try and raise money. He frequently did raise money for his films. He would start them, and then he would just quit them abruptly and go, I don't huh. want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. he, he was his own worst enemy in a lot of ways. I don't want to paint the picture that it was just him versus studios all the time because he was incredibly difficult to work with but um in in a lot of in a lot of cases the studios had valid reasons to do battle with him but um he kind of undid himself in a lot of ways all right jordan your number one my number one is 12 angry men every time i watch this movie I, i take notes when i watch movies every single time i watch it the end of my notes say this really is the best movie ever right i i just think it's an astounding film almost all in one room except for the, the oh, intro yeah. shots. And somehow you're never bored in that room. You're never bored with these 12 people that are the only people you see the whole time, pretty much, other than a, a really bored judge in the beginning. Does the uh, Blackdell test? It, you know, it doesn't. <laughs> it really doesn't. Jordan, uh, could you quickly name the director and give a synopsis? I hear his film? name is Sidney Lumet. <laughs> nope, it's well, Lumet. <laughs> some debate about Come that. But. Come on, Charlie Rose said Lumet. Sidney Lumet. Lumet. <laughs> Love it. Uh, I honestly don't know that much about him. I'm sure that Lance does. Not really. Why not? He made a lot of good films throughout the years. Oh, he did. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't know. You mean like, do I know a lot about him personally? Like what he ate for breakfast, mm-hmm. that kind of thing? No. Very <laughs> you long. never had breakfast with him? No. No. Uh, I say this about 12 Angry Men, so... Um, uh, you, just, you prefer the uh, Friedkin version? No, I didn't know there was a Friedkin version. Friedkin did a, a TV <laughs> version of it. It's in like, Freakin' Weekend. In like... <laughs> <laughs> He did. He did a TV version of it. I want to say in like in the '90s. I've never seen it. Yeah, it didn't have like Jack Lemmon or somebody in it. They had somebody. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure it had at least twelve people. Yeah, in it. probably very yeah, so angry. 12, Twelve Angry Men follows the uh, jury deliberation in a uh, murder trial. Um, it's about uh, I don't know ninety minutes long ish. I don't mm-hmm. quite know how long it is. Um, it is the sweatiest movie you will ever see. <laughs> it is essentially these twelve dudes sitting in a in a in a room where. I, I can't remember if the AC went out in the room or what the the story is. I think it was is, the 50s and they just didn't. These guys it. are no, these guys are just dripping buckets the entire time, and you're sitting there. You're like, God, I just wish the foreman would bring them a towel or well, something. They're, probably they're, one of the, my favorite things about it is is that he sort of uses everything in the room, not as characters but as as props. So there's a fan in the room that's up in the corner, mm-hmm. and one of the dudes goes over and switches the fan. They can't get it on for like the first half of the movie. Uh-huh. They can't turn the fan on, and they finally are able to switch it on, and that is at exact at the exact moment of a big turning point in the movie when huh. more of the opinions and verdicts are changing of the jurors. And yeah. so it's so detail oriented. It's it's just it's, yeah, it's, it's perfect. I to me. think the heat is why they were so angry too. If the AC had worked, <laughs> it would have just been called Twelve Pleasant Men. I'm not sure that that's true. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's, not. It's a pretty heated um, uh, subject. Yeah, and a lot of racial tension going on in there. there even is. though it's twelve, and that's a, something that's interesting about it. Is it is, it's twelve white men. 
But what do they have to be angry about? <laughs> uh, so, but the the person on trial was a young uh, Latino boy, I believe. Yeah. So it dealt with racial tension. But but that's I mean that's a big thing that they talk about the whole time is is basically these these guys are assuming that he did it because he's this young f- foreign quote unquote um, kid. It's a great movie. It's a fantastic movie. I mean, to me, though, it's always felt like a, a play that's being filmed as opposed to a movie, which is always why it's always kind of one step removed for me on best of lists. I like way. movies like that. There's a lot in the 50s and 60s that felt mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. I think uh, he does enough little touches in there to make it feel like a film. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it feels like it because it's in one room, but the the le- the camera lens changes and, mm. and all that. I mean, there are so many. I mean, do you think Phone Booth feels like a like a play? Well, no, but it's, I mean, it's filmed in such a modern way, though, that it's... I've never seen phone booth. I don't think it's a good movie. Yeah, the, uh, it's, it's, it's unique. It's got that stationary quality, and the only other movie I could think of that did that was Breakfast Club, where you've essentially got this yeah. group of people in one location yeah. the entire time that just have these riveting conversations. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the script is so tight and perfect, and it's it's... It's really a really remarkable film. Hmm. I, I think the thing I love about it is that, and I, I don't want to ruin too much here, but yeah, uh, don't ruin the jokes in this one. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the, the the setup is that uh, only one of the the twelve jury members believes that the defendant is innocent. Um, they take an initial vote. They all want to get out of there. It seems like a shut and uh, open and shut case. There's a baseball game to get to. There's a baseball game to get to. There is. Essentially, the story is about how this one guy takes a stand, and essentially, it, it is very much a kind of go-against-the-grain type movie. It's got this Gary Cooper high-noon quality to it, where this guy just decides he's going to stand up for this and do the right thing, and he ends up battling these 11 guys to change everyone's mind. Which we don't know if he does or not. No, we just don't know. Not not, we don't know. not, not yet. The audience doesn't know. <laughs> right. At least right. four of us know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Eight more to go to get to twelve. Make it Give me tough. number one, best number one film by best first film. time filmmaker. Um, first of all, before I get into this, let me do. Let me say that there was. I probably had about thirty films from this list of debuts that I had to pare down to <laughs> five, ostensibly. Um, yeah, because you cheated. <laughs> and uh, you had thirty films. You had to pare down to eight for your list of three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And there was there's a lot of great options. Uh, so number one, uh, well, for, first of all, if we're throwing out Rotten Tomatoes scores, eighty five percent in Bottle Rocket, I believe Black Stallion is at eighty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Dang man! But anyway, uh, of, it's got to be a lot of teenage girls. <laughs> yeah, it's got to. Well, I mean, it's got to be better. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's got to be better. There's it's no, three better. more better. Three yeah. points better. Three units. <laughs> <laughs> so number one, uh, the wonderful nineteen eighty nine film by Cameron Crowe, Say Anything. It's just one of my favorite pop punk bands. Pop punk bands. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I I just think Cameron Kerr kind of has a cool story, and I kind of looked this up, um, kind of studying and figuring him out. Uh, and you know, Crow famously, or should I say, almost famously, <laughs> oh. uh, started oh. out as a music journalist do, uh, interviewing bands for Rolling Stone. Uh, but one thing I didn't know was when he was 22, he went undercover in a high school. Yeah, he like re-enrolled in a senior year in high school, and he was 22 years old. Went through the whole year and wrote a book about his experiences, which was Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which became the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which um, was directed by a woman. That's Amy right, Heckerling. Yeah, yeah, Amy Heckerling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was um, on this list of debut films, even. Yeah, and so but awesome. it wasn't until 10 years later that he actually wrote and directed Say Anything. But I think that Say Anything captures the high school experience in a way that. 
Uh, even John Hughes doesn't quite. And John Hughes is, and I love his movies probably more than Cameron Crowe's, but John Hughes almost does this uh, movie version of High School Life yeah. where it's semi-realistic, but it really plays to archetypes and that kind of thing. Whereas I felt like Cameron Crowe is a lot more accurate of yeah. like what High School Life was like. And I think that's a big part to him actually going undercover and him being a reporter and, and looking at things and reflecting them back on screen as opposed to uh, making it up just in his head. Yeah, so. this is an honest film. I mean, I think it's true to high school life. And even though John Cusack was about 24 at the time, he looked like a high schooler and these look like high school kids. And I mean, there's nothing that rings false in this movie to me. I th- Yeah, I, it's it's an honest film. What I find interesting about it is when you when you look at it, it's almost not a high school movie. It's essentially what happens after that right after. certain structure yeah. of high school vanishes. Yep. And, and you know, I mean, you, you, you up to that point in your life, you did first grade, then you did second grade, and then that just kind of continued. You get your senior year. All of a sudden, everybody's scattered, going their own direction. And it's this, I mean, for me at least, it was this kind of weird, scary point in your life. And, it, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of movies have dealt with high school, done them very effectively. Pretty much every John Hughes movie did. Uh, but this was a movie that dealt with kind of a what happens right after high school. That's not something a lot of filmmakers, off the top of my head, I can't think of any filmmakers that dealt with that. I'm sure some have, but... It, it deals with that un- unique, interesting thing that I think even a lot of adults have kind of forgotten about what that was like. Legally Blonde's kind of right after high school. <laughs> Same yeah. thing. I think it's after college, though, because she goes to law school. She does. Oh, school. it's right oh, after right. undergrad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The scene where they are on the airplane, and it was the deal where it's like most uh, plane crashes happen before the fast and seatbelt light goes off. So they're waiting for the fast and seatbelt light to go off. And then they'll know everything's okay, and it's kind of yeah. thematically about the relationship or whatever. But the way that it's kind of shot, it reminded me of it does the look last a lot scene like the in graduate. the graduate. It's a lot more hopeful than the graduate. It movie. is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you actually think. And and you know, there's right. excitement on their faces. Where at the end of the graduate, the two of them are <laughs> like, "What They're, have we just done?" Yeah. Well, it's like in the graduate, you're seeing the beginning and end of their relationship, yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's a very astute observation. I think it's probably very much a more positive spin, but still a throwback to the end of the graduate. Yeah. I mean, what what I what I really like about it too is it's kind of a, you can say it's a romance film, but there's you know not a whole lot of romance in it. It's just, well, I guess I've said it a thousand times. It's honest, unlike yeah. Lance's list. Mm, <laughs> it also interesting fact it uh, raised the incidence um, in the United States of guys raising boomboxes above their head to win women back um, yeah. skyrocketed after this. Percent. How many times do you think it worked? None. Zero. None. I think it worked in terms of getting restraining orders filed. Yeah. I don't think it actually did anything to win women back. How many dads came out in their underwear because of it <laughs> to yell at the kid? I wonder if they sold a lot of boom boxes after that. Yeah. After that, and trench coats. Is anywhere in a trench coat? Yeah. Did you know, uh, interesting tidbit, that during that scene when they actually filmed it, he was playing a fishbone song. Uh, and fish it wasn't bone? until later wow. that they found out uh, the In Your Eyes, the, the Peter song. Gabriel song uh, to use. All right. Uh, <laughs> my number one. I really wish they'd used a fishbone song. It would have just really ruined that movie. Yeah. There's so many spoofs you could do in that scene where he just plays the wrong, <laughs> the wrong song. song. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would work. It seems like even the volume of that wouldn't really translate well. Like, how, how loud can he's you really so make one of those? I don't know. Uh, top that. He's playing top that, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Year. My number one uh, best debut film is Iron Giant, directed by Brad Bird. I've never seen it. Uh, fantastic. Probably my favorite animated movie of all time. Came out in 1999. It's got a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, Beats Bugs Stallion. (laughs) How many? 96% positive. People love it. 
So Brad Bird is of the same class at CalArts as John Lasseter and Tim Burton. He kind of came out of that first kind of animation group at CalArts. Uh, he got a start at Disney working on uh, films like The Fox and the Hound. Um, a few years later, got to write and direct the short film Family Dog, which is part of Spielberg's Amazing Stories series. Uh, worked on The Simpsons for six seasons as a producer. Wrote Batteries Not Included. Worked mm. on The Critic and King of the Hill. So this was a guy that had a lot under his belt by the time he yeah, did his debut film. So a bit of a backstory on where Warner Brothers was at at the time. Warner Brothers Animation was kind of a new thing. They put out this movie Quest for Camelot that super bombed. Uh, and as a result of that, Iron Giant was the next one up. And there was a lot of kind of turnover. And Bird was kind of left to make the movie that he wanted to make. So they were like, look, nobody's really in charge of you. Just keep making this movie. And so as a result, he made Iron Giant as he wanted to. But uh, at the same time, it got no push from the studio. So it opened at number nine the weekend that it came out. And uh, so it was kind of a flop until later. It was kind of discovered on VHS and TV and DVD. And when it first test screened, the film reportedly received the highest scores that Warner Brothers had ever gotten in 15 years. Uh, but by then it was too late to push it. They had already missed the window for doing all the toy uh, kind of um, promotions and things like that. So it was a bomb, but obviously Brad Bird went on to, you know, direct some of our greatest animated films uh, in addition to live action films like um, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol and Tomorrowland. So this kind of kicked him off. And I just think that it captures kind of his voice, which is this kind of, you know, it's got the cool action pieces, set pieces, but it's also got the sentimentality. Uh, and it kind of says something kind of larger as well. To me, it's just always been one of my favorite movies and one of my favorite filmmakers um, and just kind of the perfect storm for it to happen in. Yeah, it's an excellent film. I remember it coming out and getting great reviews, and I didn't see it until a couple of years later. So I'm, part, I'm partly to blame, Brad. I'm sorry. It's always felt like a very underappreciated film to me, but although it shouldn't be. I've never met any. A lot of people have seen it. It's not like no one's ever seen it. Right. Everyone who's seen it adores it. Yeah. And yet, it seems like when you see these lists of greatest animated films, it's not on it enough. Um, I, I don't know why. It seems like it just never burst onto the popular imagination quite as much as it should have. Yeah, I mean, part of that, I think, is just it's not Disney. If it had been a Disney <laughs> film, everybody would be still be talking about it at the top of the list. And for yeah. whatever reason, Disney's always owned that space of best animated films. Strange. So. It was traditionally animated, right? Not CGI. It was traditionally animated, that's right. Although I feel like Spirited Away tops a lot of animated that's true that list. is on a lot but disney did distribute yeah, disney that oh i didn't realize States, that. yeah it seems like spirited away though gets a claim in kind of a different arena than the other disney movies do you don't see little kids running around with spirited away t-shirts <laughs> certainly and not plush toys yeah. uh, Spir- i don't see Spir- many kids making best of lists either on the <laughs> no, internet you certainly so. don't um, we should have some on the show. <laughs> I hate children. Spirited away seems <laughs> you know to, chuck a lot <laughs> spirited away seems to capture more of that like intellectual movie critic who still wants right. to throw a bone to animated movies type type group. I mean, it's a very good movie. Oh, it's incredible. All right, bit of trivia. Only six directors have won Best Director Oscar for their film debut. Can you name them? Redford. Redford is one of them. Costner? Costner is one of them. Dances with the Wolves. Redford was for Ordinary People. That dude from 1961 who did the music Robbins. musical. Jerome Robbins. Wells didn't win for director, did he? He did not. Coppola, well, his first movie was not Godfather, so I take Dementia that. 13. Yeah. Uh, the others not, are not real Dilbert worthy. Mann for Marty. Okay. Oh. 1955. Don't know it. 
James L. Brooks, Terms of Endearment. Oh, 83. Yeah, he was close to being on my list. Sam Mendez from American Oh, Oh, how do we forget old Sam? Okay, so, all right, so in closing, um, we wanted to wrap up. Just what are you guys excited about? What have you seen recently that you loved? Uh, Any kind of quick... Uh, I saw The Black Stallion recently. (laughs) It's pretty great. (laughs) Heard it's not that good. I'm excited about this podcast, guys, and where we're going to go from here. That's sweet, Gibby. That really is sweet. Thanks. Uh, I finally finished watching Lost. Yeah. Oh, and how did you feel about yeah. it? I I loved Lost. I had a feeling. I thought it was one of the most consistently well-written shows that I've ever seen up until the last season. Just the last season dropped off a little bit. As a general rule, if Hudson thinks something is of super high quality and is just really, really great, I'm going to absolutely hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited about Tom McCarthy. Oh, yeah. Spotlight. That's what I'm excited about. Station agent. Uh, the actor I from Meet the Parents, plays the brother-in-law. Yep. I had uh, never seen any of his movies. I'd seen him in movies, but I'd never seen any of his movies. And I finally watched Spotlight a few weeks ago. And I love journalism movies. Um, and I really do. It's a genre of movie. If I mean, there is. Yeah. That podcast I've, thirteen. Uh, I and I loved Spotlight. Was really blown away by it, and had heard about the station agent for a long time. So I. I loved Spotlight so much that I thought I needed to watch Station Agent, which I was absolutely in love with and thought a lot about for as a debut film. I cried when I watched it. Well, I am excited about ending this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, guys. We haven't really heard what Lance is excited Uh, about. Yeah, you know, I I, I went back and watched a movie uh, from a few years ago that I forgot how good it was, Dread. No, the Carl Urban. Yeah. Yeah. Remake of uh, Judge Dredd, which I think nobody saw Dredd because they were afraid it was just going to be That's Judge Dredd. Well, they're both based on a comic book. They are. Um, it's it's just it's just a great movie, yeah. and I don't know why it didn't get more yeah. acclaim than it did. It actually. got pretty well Alex acclaimed. Alex Garland did the screenplay. But nobody saw it. Yeah, nobody saw it. Nobody you, saw if you it. Talk, walk to t- uh, 10 people on the street and agree, saw nobody Dredd, saw it. maybe one person yeah. saw it. Yeah, no, it's supposed um, to be awesome. Great cast, great story. It's just intense and cool and uh, makes great use of music throughout. Uh, yeah. Great movie. I'd like to see it. it remember, better, we yeah. saw Judge Dredd at the Gwinnett Place Dollar Theater. I don't remember seeing that movie. I remember you've or said this. We saw it. I remember seeing it. Yeah, great movie. Sorry. Uh, Dredd could have used more Rob Schneider. Yeah. But other than that, great, great movie. More. So there's some? No. no, no, no. He was in Judge Dredd and not Dredd. Oh, I haven't seen either. Big right. difference between those movies. Dredd is actually really cool. Yeah. Dredd is kind of like a... Uh, raid? Yeah, it's like the raid. It's very much like raid. I haven't seen that either. Hmm. Well, guys, thanks for listening. Yeah. This has been... What's the name of our podcast? <laughs> Four Friends Fight About Film. Yeah. I need more fighting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think we had a little bit, and he, right. he was mocking my black stallion. You guys are going to regret it. Hey, y'all. This is Jordan. Thanks so much for listening to Four Friends Fight About Film. The four friends are Hudson Phillips, Lance Hurd, Kyle Gibson, and Jordan Noel. We record this podcast in Atlanta, Georgia. We'll see you next week.